night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Nita Bells, author of In Our ba- She's the executive director of In Our Backyard, and also the author of In Our Backyard: Human Trafficking in America and What We Can Do to Stop It. Anyone can find themselves confronted with a human trafficking situation, as victims are often with us in plain sight. A public restroom stall is often the only place that a victim is alone and able to ask for help. Freedom stickers, the toll-free number and text of the National Human Trafficking Hotline, are placed in public restroom stalls, providing victims a pathway to freedom at a moment when the traffickers' control is at its weakest. Nita Bells, actively involved in this innovative outreach effort to combat human trafficking nationwide, has been featured on USA Today, CNN, and Fox. Welcome to the show, Nita. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Human trafficking, uh, I guess the first question I want to just ask you is, how big a problem is this? Let's talk about it specifically in terms of in the United States. Yeah, in the United States, and honestly, that's, uh, that's where we focus our efforts. We don't, uh, we don't go overseas. There's plenty right here. Um, it is a significant problem, uh, much larger than uh, we think, and sometimes I'm surprised. I've been doing this for 12 years, and sometimes I'm surprised with how large the problem is when I see, um, see you know, different things. There are not really good statistics with this because, uh, unfortunately, it's really hard to have anyone raise their hand and say, count me, because they're, they're in slavery. They can't, they can't do anything about that. Uh, they can't identify because they or their loved ones may be killed. Um, so uh, it's a significant problem. It happens to the best of families. It happens to um, the most difficult of families. Uh, traffickers see a vulnerability and seize on it. So 12 years ago, you, that's mm-hmm. when you became involved. And, right. uh, yeah, okay, so what sort of prompted you or motivated you to get involved? Obviously, you say, okay, this is a huge problem in the United States, but we really don't know exactly how big. Um, but at, at some point, you uh, became executive director of this nonprofit advocacy group. Um, you know, how did that come about, and how do we? I mean, let's start maybe with, I want to talk obviously about these freedom stickers, because I think that really is an innovative idea for combating human trafficking, but maybe just taking it back a little. How did you get right. involved? What did, you, well, yeah, what did uh, you start doing? In uh, 2006, I was working on my master's degree. My master's degree is in theology with a concentration in women's concerns. And um, so this, I'm a survivor, actually, of domestic violence, and this was a natural crossover. And when I saw human trafficking, I thought, that is the worst thing I've ever seen on planet Earth. I have to do something. And frankly, I asked God, what what do you want me to do? I have to do something. And um, the answer that I felt like I received was quite different than what I expected. 
Uh, I'd never been somebody who wanted to write a book, um, but that's what I felt like I was supposed to do. So I began writing my book. There was hardly anything written in 2006 on this, and so uh, I had to do a lot of boots on the ground kind of research, and as I was doing that, um, different opportunities came, and I'm still working with some of the people I worked with then to fight this atrocity, and, you know, one thing led to another, and in 2009, I started Central Oregonians Against Trafficking Humans. 2011, my first book came out, uh, 20, that was picked up by a publisher, and, and in 2014, uh, they republished, or 2015, they republished, uh, but by then, In Our Backyard was well-established, and um, because I started it, I'm the executive director. You're the executive uh, director. So what do they do? What do these human traffickers do, actually? I mean, how do they co... I mean, I know, obviously, they coerce, coerce these young women. How does that work? What do they do? I mean, you say they yeah. come, the, the women come from well-to-do families, they come from poor families, but there's a certain right. kind of, I would assume, vulnerability about them. So how do they, how do they, I guess, get them, ensnare them, coerce them? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question yeah. because uh, people are still thinking that um, traffickers get their victims by abduction. They talk about a white van, you know, and, and all of that is, frankly, hogwash. That is not how it happens. How it happens is that um, it's a wooing. It's a, um, we call the, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000 calls it force, fraud, or coercion. And that's exactly what happens. So somebody, um, Let's say it's somebody at school begins talking to a child. It's somebody online. It's meeting somebody in a bar. And it's children. It's adults. It's sex trafficking. It's labor trafficking. Uh, with sex trafficking, normally it's we're going to make a bunch of money. There's going to be a bunch of um, fun that we're going to have. You'll travel. with And... It, with sex trafficking, it's more of a boyfriend thing most of the time where, you know, the boyfriend is doing what we call selling the dream to a, a woman or a child, a girl. Um, with so what would he say? Let's take the sex trafficking. What would he okay. say to them when you talk about selling the dream? What does that mean? What would he do to his girlfriend or what would he say? <laughs> So from the beginning, he knows what his intentions are. He's got nothing to lose. And he, what he wants is for her to be so head over heels for him, she'll do anything for him. And that's how it starts. He would say to her, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I've never met anybody like you in my life. My gosh, I just can't live without you. You are, you are the most unique and wonderful. You make me happy like nobody's ever made me. He looks for her vulnerabilities. He looks for, you know, does she want someone to love her? Yes. Okay, then that's what he's going to do. Does she want, you know, he listens. I had a, an ex-pimp tell me one time, a good pimp listens because they hear what it is that their victim wants and they tell them how they're going to provide it. And whether they provide it or not, once she's emotionally hooked, trauma bond, um, once that happens, then, um, you know, there's, there's really, she'll do anything for him. And once she turns her first trick, he knows he's got her. 
And then what happens after that? Are we talking about girls? What age? Let's say here in the United States, are we t- I know, uh, what are we talking about in terms of age? Because aren't people going to come looking for them? I mean, it, maybe it's one thing if you're over 16, 17, 18, but I, I know this happens with younger girls. It happens, uh, it happens with uh, the average age of entry, they say, is 12 to 14 for girls and 11 to 13 for boys. Um, but it, it continues to happen because once they are trapped in that trauma bond, they, um, I just read um, an account from a survivor friend of mine this morning, and she said she was trafficked until she was 29, and then she went on to traffic her to prostitute herself because she had never known anything else. And that's, uh, you know, that's very common. We often, as Americans, call them prostitutes, but that's a horrific thing to call somebody, uh, you know, if we think about calling names, because they have no control over being prostituted, and then because they have never known anything else, they deserve so much better. Now, are these individuals, the traffickers, are they, they're, they, they, as you say, they go to bars, they go to schools. I mean, what other kinds of places, first of all, where will we find them most often? And I guess the second question is, because I know you discuss this in the book and obviously at your organization, um, you say be aware and take notice, what do you see? And there's a whole list of things that you have. We as individuals right. can maybe identify some of these these women or men who have been who are the victims of human trafficking. There are certain signs, I guess, when we meet these individuals. Right. For sex trafficking, um, one of the rules of sex trafficking is that the victim is not allowed to look a male in the eye unless she is soliciting him or he is her pimp. And so that's that's a really strong sign right there. Um, They may have bruises. They may, um, I'll tell you a story. I was in um, the Portland airport with the U.S. Marshal over human trafficking for Oregon. If anyone had the authority to do something, it was him. I was sitting there and he said, Nita, look behind you, not now, but in a minute. And uh, he said, that girl is not with her dad. And I turned around and I saw her and him and sure enough. And so what I said to her, I looked straight at her and I said, um, I, I need some help. I've got this tape recorder. I'm trying to work and, and you're young and smart and I'm old. And so can you help me? And before she could even speak, the man answered for her and said, we're not good at that. And, um, so I, I wouldn't have dared talk to her uh, and ask her if she was safe with him because she would have gotten beaten or maybe even killed if, you know, she had answered wrong and there is no right answer with a trafficker. Um, but what I talked to her about, I told her she was pretty and I thanked her and I thought she was probably pretty smart and, you know, just complimented her and tried to build her up in the, you know, 30 seconds to a minute that I had to do that, but really there was nothing we could do. There wasn't a crime. There wasn't probable cause. Um, There may be a crime going on, but we couldn't see it. We didn't have any evidence for that. And so what I say is people call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. 
don't get involved because um, we, we may do more harm than good and that person deserves our help. Well, you also say, as I understand it, and you can give out the line, uh, the number now, and also we can do it at the end of the show, but you say actually that you could endanger yourself or the person, so don't handle the, don't do this, don't handle this on your own. Call if you expect exactly. something. Yeah, call. Exactly. Um, and I yes. think that sounds like good advice, but the, the number that I have is uh, 1888. Three seven three seven eight eight eight. Is that the number we call? That is correct. That's the number. Okay. And you can also text "Be Free," and they just started a uh, a chat with the National Human Trafficking Hotline too. So um, it's really working, and it's really working to help victims get out. It's working to help the public become aware, and that is one of the uh, reasons that we started our Freedom Stickers. Um, which are inside bathroom stalls. Oftentimes that's the only time a victim is alone and able to ask for help is inside a bathroom stall. And so uh, they go in there, they can, uh, with their cell phones, and most sex trafficking victims will have cell phones uh, because that's how the trafficker is keeping tabs on them. That's their leash, so to speak, for uh, this person they're trafficking. Um, And so... Uh, yeah, they can be in that restroom stall within a couple minutes, call, arrange for help, and erase that text from their phone and go out. The trafficker doesn't have any idea that help is on the way. So have you, has that been very successful? And also I want to amend, also I think which the innovative part of this, you do this at the Super Bowl. You've done this for, what, nine years or more? You put yeah. these freedom stickers in because that's a huge place, I guess, and that's a place where human traffickers, or these predators, it's a great place for them to, 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 to get these, these victims, these young men and women. But, um, so you put the stickers in the bathrooms at the Super Bowl? and Right. Yeah. So that, yeah. anytime there's a large event, and we don't go to the actual Super Bowl, we go... Uh, we go a couple weeks before and we work with the public and with law enforcement to help stop trafficking and uh, we have an event where people in the area uh, and we work ahead of time with people in the area. We have a program called Convenience Stores Against Trafficking because uh, half, uh, hard to believe, but half of the American public goes into a convenience store every day and so We have uh, convenience stores against trafficking. We're training convenience store employees, owners, to spot trafficking, to call the hotline. We have the freedom stickers in the bathroom stalls, and uh, people are actually, we have documented cases of people getting recovered, getting services, getting out of the life because it catches them in a place where they are ready to get help and they can call and get that help. So, I mean, that's obviously that's very, um, well, I mean, very. Uh, that's exciting. That's great that that happens and you've been successful in, in doing that. I want to make sure, I also want to, I don't want to kind of brush over the fact because in that situation the person is, as you say, you train them like in people in the convenience store or what the, at, to be able to recognize someone who is 
a victim of human trafficking. And I wanted to be a little bit more specific, I mean, about what you're looking for. You mentioned like in the, in, in the airport, for instance, but you're talking mm-hmm. about uh, the teens or adults or children who will avoid right. eye contact, one of the things, or they appear drugged or sleepy. I'm just kind of going through some of these, or appear that yeah. they're dominated or controlled by someone. You know, I can right. picture the person with their head down and sort of anxious and fearful, right. and, um, and, and as you say, they may even have bruises or cuts. But, um, so those are all the kinds of things to look for. And right, and they will more. appear to be uh, bonded because the trafficker has bonded them uh, traumatically. It's like the Stockholm Syndrome, where she is going to protect him, she is going to care for him, uh, she's going to do anything for him. And so it's really, you know, even if we could get alone with her and say, you need to get out of this, can I help you? She may not think she wants out. And so that's why it's so important to catch them at those vulnerable moments. Um, And, um, yeah, it's hard for the average citizen to see, uh, recognize a trafficking situation. We were in a hotel in um, Minnesota just last weekend, and... um, there was a trafficking situation there, and um, the server, I was asking her about the people that she was serving because I recognized it for what it was. It looked like there were two traffickers, and, and I call them traffickers. I don't call them pimps because our society has um, really glamorized that word, and so two traffickers sitting there with a girl, uh, of course, we did not intervene, uh, but we did take detailed information and report it to law enforcement. And uh, I heard back from law enforcement, they're on it. Um, so these are the things that are happening around us all the time. Also, labor trafficking in restaurants, um, domestic servitude, all kinds of, if there's a way of making money, there's a way of trafficking someone. And uh, so we need to be aware of that and, again, call the hotline. It's easier for a person who's being labor trafficked to get out because they're not trauma-bonded, usually, to that captor like sex trafficking. So when you're going around the country, I guess one question is, is it more common in cities or medium-sized cities, or does it happen in small towns? I mean, are there places where it happens more often than others, uh, either sex or uh, or just for money, uh, labor? Or is it just is prevalent and it doesn't really matter? You know, it's in every zip code in the United States. And, uh, for instance, in sex trafficking, traffickers... Um, often talk about going to rural areas to recruit victims because they're unsuspecting because we have perpetuated this myth that this only happens in the big cities. So they're unsuspecting and rural people don't expect it. And it's a, it's a sadly at what they call a good place to recruit. Um, so it happens, it happens in every zip code in the United States. And that's the, that's the word we've got to get out. What about families? I mean, we haven't really talked about that, but mm-hmm. families who whose children have been um, trafficked, Traffic, yeah. I guess, is that the right, yeah. Yeah, word, yeah that's right. That's the right terminology. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it's, it what do is they do? the most yeah. devastating. I can't imagine anything harder 
um, they are often killed in trafficking because it, and nobody reports them because who's going to report them? They've been missing for so long and um, the traffickers not going to report them. They're going to be the suspect. Um, so yes, it is devastating to families and uh, families um, try their best. It, it's, it's beyond difficult. It's beyond horrific when a family member has been trafficked. Um, they often turn on their families. Um, it's, it's, um, it's the saddest thing. Are there any, do you have any, because you've been in this uh, uh, you know, organization for a long time, an executive director, are there any good outcomes with families yes. or do you have any? Yeah. You know, and when I first started, I thought, oh, surely somebody recovers and, and there's no trace of being trafficked. But really, that's not true. Uh, everything, uh, everyone that I know that has been trafficked, there's a, um, there is a um, continuous um, dealing with what they have dealt with. Uh, but they can go on to lead a normal life, a happy life, and they will be the most compassionate of people oftentimes because they are able to um, to empathize and help people in ways that nobody nobody quite understands um, and so um, you know some of my dearest friends are survivors of human trafficking and they are incredible friends. They would have your back when others would turn away. Uh, but so there is, there are many stories of recovery, but it doesn't erase the tragedy. Today, with the internet, does it, uh, um, neither does that sort of make it or a bigger problem because because traffickers have e- more easy or easier access to to victims. I mean, it would seem to me would help. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. A lot of recruitment happens on the internet, and the majority of selling of sex happens on the internet. So yes, it's a tremendous problem with the internet. So I guess that would be one thing that parents um, have to, uh, really important, I guess, in terms of, I don't like to use the word policing. I don't know another word to use, but really be aware of what your kids are involved in when they're on the net. Um, And what about girls versus, and and boys, are there more women or young, young women or young men who are trafficked or is it about the same? Yeah, I want to first address your, um, your uh, comments about the internet and how to care for our children. We have a whole page on our website for parents and what they should do to protect their children on the Internet from human trafficking because kids are laying in their bed at night with their smartphones and traffickers are wooing them. And so we've got to stop that. The parents have to have the passwords. They have to know what their children are doing because a child goes missing and you never know until they're gone what they've been doing on that phone. So it's a very dangerous situation. And uh, then for your second question. Well, before you answer that one, maybe I I would like to stick with this one. Are parents listening to you? Are they, are, are they, you know, you say you have a whole page on, on the website telling them what to do. Do you think parents really are 
cognizant of this? That they really, I mean, are they aware? I guess awareness is the first step, right? Parents really yes, have to. Yes, I think parents yeah. for the most part are. Um, you know, you've always got parents that maybe are a little detached, but I, most parents I know are very interested. And in fact, we post that page on our social media um, regularly because parents want to know. Uh, they're hearing about it. When I first started 12 years ago, nobody even knew what human trafficking was. Now people know human trafficking. They, they oftentimes believe some myths about it, like they're being abducted or um, that it's all foreign-born nationals. Honestly, the majority of sex trafficking victims are American citizens, uh, the large majority. Um, and so there are those myths, but parents know that human trafficking is happening and they know that it can happen. Hopefully they know it can happen to their child so they can protect their child. So the website is inourbackyard.org. Right? Inourbackyard.org. And you'll find a myriad of information on there to help you. You can order freedom stickers on there. You can become a freedom sticker hero. Um, There is a uh, waiver you sign, and um, the stickers are free. We ask for a donation if... uh, you know, if you can, because it does cost us money. Uh, but, yeah, we want those freedom stickers in every restroom stall in the United States because it will result in lives being saved. Yeah. So just like we only have a couple minutes left, so what's kind of, uh, I, I guess that second question was just uh, young men, women, or boys and girls, uh, is, is it equal or, uh, you know, in terms of... Um, yeah. yeah, the majority of sex trafficking victims are going to be uh, female women and girls. Labor trafficking is more, uh, it's more male, uh, but 80% of trafficking victims are women. So, um, you know, it's, it's uh, both, both genders, but more female. Who do we look for? And uh, you've got two minutes left to really wind this our interview up. Uh, sorry we don't have more time, but uh, in terms of what does the trafficker look like? Is there any kind of a person that we could recognize who would be a trafficker? Or are they just... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is really no profile for a trafficker. Um, yeah. It's it's different. Uh, there, there's no way to know. If, yeah, I've been doing this for long enough. I can spot it. Uh, but even sometimes I'm fooled. Uh, the best thing to do is to get on our website, learn about human trafficking, buy the book, and I'm shameless about promoting that book. All the proceeds go back into the work, but it is called The Primer on Human Trafficking in the United States. And so once you, know, once you read that book, you will know what human trafficking looks like, you will know what to do, and you will be passionate to do something to stop this atrocity. And anyone, um, well, I'd say 15 and over, can read the book. We've had children as young as uh, 12 read the book and, and be just fine with it. We wrote it that way so that, you know, we can get the word out to the most important, um, most, most significant population for this atrocity. Well, Nita Bells, thanks so much for being on the show today, Um, Executive Director of In Our Backyard and author of In Our Backyard, Human Trafficking in America and What We Can Do to Stop It. The website is inourbackyard.org. 
www.thebookshop.org. Go to the website, buy the book. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And awareness is the key. And thank you for being a part of that. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Saida Desilei. Our topic is sexual sovereignty. Uh, she is uh, She's an author, and Jade Egg practice expert, Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. did not respect it, and women who are now coming forward about their sexual abuse at the hands of these men are only now claiming it. It's their sexual sovereignty, the right to control their own sexual and physical fate, not subject to the demands, control, or perversion of others. Dr. Desilet, a victim of a violent rape that nearly cost her her life, put her on the path of researching ways women could use their minds, bodies, and spirits to create richer lives through their sensual selves. Founder of the Desilet Method, she is a contributor to Dr. Christine Northrup's books, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, and the Secret Pleasures of Menopause. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, if I can call you Saida. 
Absolutely, Catherine. It's going to be a fabulous uh, conversation. I'm really excited to be here. Okay. Well, we're going to be talking about sexual sovereignty. So, um, I guess the first thing I'm going to ask you: What? I mean, I gave a brief description of what it is, but what is, it, what is <laughs> sexual sovereignty, especially in the in the context of what's happening to us, to women today, in the context of the Harvey Weinstein's and the Louis C.K.'s, for instance? Absolutely. I, I am very happy to clarify that. I think it's important so we're all on the same page. So sovereignty basically means to have full authority, autonomy over one's domain. In this instance, I'm referring, I call it sexual sovereignty because it involves your sexuality and your body. So imagine having the full authority, full autonomy over your body and your sexuality, your pleasure, your fertility, any decision that needs to be made around uh, your body, your sexuality, that's for you to choose and you alone. And I actually believe this to be a human birthright. We're born with the right to our own body, period. And what's interesting about that is it's not in the collective, and it, it needs to be for a multitude of reasons. So that's the description, and we can dive a little deeper in a moment. Yeah, because you talk about, I think you quote, uh, there's a quote uh, from you that's a quote from Hamesh Ali Dina. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but in a society that benefits from your self-doubt, liking yourself in the context in which we're talking about is a rebellious act. And I think that's the real issue for women, at least uh, uh, today in in the United States. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I I, I love that you... Yeah, I love that you said this quote. It's a very important quote um, because sexual sovereignty, so let me describe it a little bit more. It's it's an important um, topic to talk about. So it innately means, if you were to step into your full sovereignty as a sexual being, it comes with not only the privilege of, of having that right and the protection of that right, but it comes with responsibility. So now we need to define this space. We need to take a stand for it. We need to, you know, voice our boundaries. We need to make good choices for ourselves. So that's uh, innately what that means. And it's interesting because when we have profound respect for ourselves in our physical space, it tends to extend out to others. So that's a very important piece in the climate of what we're currently looking at. Because I think what could happen easily right now with the Me Too movement and the coming out and the outing and that basically we're asking accountability, we're using our voices, which is all fantastic. But what could happen is instead of having a breakthrough and really breaking the cycle of trauma, it could loop back on itself. It could become a topic that we're bored with and then we move on to something else without ever really having leaned in a little more to to look at, well, what else is there? And so I'm hoping today with you, Catherine, we can talk about more the now what aspect of this movement. Okay, so we want, we want to be more specific, as you say, and kind of lean into it, because you don't want it to be a trend, is what you're saying. Like the Me Too movement being a trend, people get sick of it, and we go on to another trend, and then we just kind of go back to the way we were. I don't know if we can actually go back to the way we were once this is all this has sort of emerged with the Me Too movement, but um, it has to be really, what do you talk, individuals, we have to be really much more self-reflective. We have to really work at it if we're going to, 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 maintain our sexual sovereignty. Yes. So I love that you said that. And get really excited when I speak to people like you. <laughs> so, so yes, absolutely. 
So what, what we're looking at here is we don't know what sexual sovereignty really is because we have no, no models for it. So we are the models. We are the ones who are going to lean in and go, wow, what would my world look like if I truly deeply respected my body, my sexuality, my sensuality, and started to live life on my own terms so that I, I would define for myself what's true and I would take a stand for that not in an arrogant way. Sometimes it might come across as rebellious, but if it is rebellious to love ourselves in a world that profits from us not loving ourselves, then let's all be a little more rebellious because I think that's, that's essential. And, and so the sovereignty piece with the Me Too movement that's happening is just that we haven't had this conversation. So we've been a lot in the labeling, the blaming, and the shaming. That's happened a lot. But what that does is it kind of stops the conversation from being more creative. So I think it's important, I'm hoping from now on culturally, we realize and recognize we must speak up on a legal um, level. I'm not a lawyer, but I consulted a lawyer on this issue. I said, what needs to happen legally to support, especially, say, abuse at work and things like this? And they said the first um, incident the company isn't liable for. So you have to report it so that if there's a secondary incident, now there's liability. And then I said, well, what happens when there's a stranger in a parking lot? And so we're, we need to report that as well. So imagine you don't know who it is, but you leave a very thorough description. You say, this is not an emergency, but this happened. Now it goes on record. And maybe a few other people call with the same description of the same person. Now, as a community, we're working together for accountability of those types of behaviors. So our voice, we need to continue to exercise that. And I really want to encourage, especially parents with children, to really encourage children to speak up. And when the children do speak up, to really listen. So I want to share a little story, if that's okay, Catherine. Yes, go ahead. Because I think one of the okay, problems great. is children often do speak up if they feel comfortable enough, but nobody listens to them. And, and that's obviously, yeah. Yes. So I want to speak a personal story. So my very first day of school, I was brought up on First Nation reservations in Canada. So the schools are very rough. And kind of the worst of the worst teachers end up teaching there. So my very first day of school, I'm six years old, and it's grade one, and Within the first 10 minutes of my very first class, the teacher walked around and she um, went around and molested every single one of us. And it was a, a massive shock. I, I actually still remember the feeling of being unable to move, being in, really, I didn't know what it was at the time because I'd never been in shock before, but a state of shock. And what did she do? The whole room. She um, put her hand down the pants of all the children and stroked our genitals and asked if we liked it and if it felt nice. And she did this to every single child. And so I remember thinking in my mind, I don't like this and it doesn't feel good. But I was too scared to to say anything in the moment. And the whole day, I think the whole class, we were just frozen. But when I got home, because I had a healthy relationship with my parents, my mom's like, how was your first day? You know, so excited about my first day. And out blurts this experience. And the very next day, we had a different teacher. So the reason I share that is not because I went and told my mom and she did something about it. 
It's that the other 29 kids never said a word. Or if they did, no one heard about it. Like, no one acted on it. And so that's why I brought the story up is we've got to establish, my parents established when I was probably not even walking yet, here is your body, here are boundaries, it's never going to be okay if this happens, you must yell, scream, tell us immediately. They, they were very clear about that, probably because we lived in a dangerous environment, but also I think just in general, it's great to teach kids these are your boundaries and it's great to take a stand for them. So that's what I'd like to see uh, an encouragement of a continuation of the Me Too piece around activating our voice is to say something and not only just for ourselves. If we see something happening to someone else, I've often stepped in and interrupted and said, excuse me just a second. And I'll turn to the woman and say, are you okay? Is this, you know, a comfortable situation for you? And nine out of 10 times, she said, no. And I said, okay, that's all right. You're going to come with me. And I turned back to the person who's kind of harassing her and saying, um, we're leaving now, thanks. And I, I, it's like a pattern interrupt. Um, I do this because I was brought up a very specific way, and I also trained in self-defense and, and things like that. But I think culturally, imagine if uh, maybe we are suddenly frozen and we can't get out of it, but someone comes up and says, hey, are you okay? It snaps us out of it. So we want to. As I, a I think also, Saida, I want to step back to your example that you had the first, you know, day of school because I think it's it's teaching is and educating is one piece of it, but as a social worker, the other piece is you want to. The little girls have to feel they have. You have to encourage. Um, those feelings of self-esteem and confidence emotionally so that they're able to, first of all, listen to what you're teaching them and then to act on it. And Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it's, so I'm glad you brought that up because I, I actually believe, like if we're at an amazing time with, with this movement, we're at an invitation collectively to make a big change. So collectively, we were all responsible for the silence of these people and for the behaviors of, of the perpetrators because collectively we partook in that whether or not we did it consciously. So we need to look at, wow, like what, what was it in our collective mind that allowed such a thing to happen? And now we get to look at, okay, so now what? We get that. That was the past. We get that we need to speak up. We get that we need accountability. We get that this is not okay. Here's the line. It's a very clear line. Now what? what? What else is there? And I think one of the things we need to look at is how we raise little girls. And we raise them to be nice girls. But here's the problem with nice girls. Nice girls are conditioned and trained to override their instincts. When they feel like Uncle Bob is kind of creepy and they don't want to kiss Uncle Bob, but they have to. When uh, the neighbor lady is weird and you don't want to go over there and take her stuff. And maybe she is, but... So there's this thing about being nice girls and overriding our instincts that we need to break ourselves out of that habit and instead, like you said, instill confidence, esteem. We want children. They're very instinctual. They're like animals. You look at dogs and cats and young children. They all react very clearly if something is off. And we want to encourage that. That's actually very healthy. It it doesn't mean that we're... um, improper socially. We can still learn all the other great social skills, but not at the cost of keeping our personal space 
clear and healthy. So let's compare the boys and the girls. What are we doing differently with the boys than the girls in terms of... Yeah, just... Yeah, that's yeah, a great okay, question. When, and I, I, I yeah. want to make sure that, that we understand that one out of three girls at statistics currently will experience this form of abuse, but it's actually one out of five boys. So it's not uncommon either for boys. But boys um, tend to be brought up where, you know, fighting and yelling and, you know, having a bit more defiance is okay. It's just part of the culture. I don't know if it's part of our sports culture or, or where it comes from. It's just the, ins- and I was brought up more like a boy in a way. My dad said, you know, you, you need to punch and scratch and fight yeah. and yell and, you know, um, I wasn't brought up like a dainty princess. It, it just wasn't there, but I had very good manners. So I think that that's um, different. And the other piece that I think for boys is they model their behavior off how we are as adults. So if they're observing a father that's disrespecting mother or a mother who doesn't have any self-esteem, that's how they're going to believe that we, all women are and this is how you treat women like this. So who, what we're modeling as adults is crucial for both boys and girls. And that's why this, this conversation of sexual sovereignty is so important because we can change how we're modeling right now, we can make that choice. And that's exciting because it has it's a huge impact. What, on, what are you, it's exciting and there's going to be a huge impact. What do you think that's going to be? I mean, if we follow through with this, I mean, mm-hmm. it changes everything. It changes your relation, obviously, your relationship with your spouse, with your partner, with your boss in the workplace. Uh, everything changes. And what are men going to be, uh, what, are, what are, I guess my question is like, well, how are men going to respond? Which, what do you, how do you think they're going to respond when the, you know, it doesn't have to be as extreme perhaps as Harvey Weinstein, but, what you know, um, what are they going to do? And how does that change everything? Let's just take the workplace, for instance. Yeah, I, I, you know, I am a firm believer in clear boundaries. And I look at it first, let's go back to children. Children actually feel safer when their boundaries are clear. And when parents are too loose around boundaries, the child doesn't feel oriented in, in a way that feels good to them. So that continues into adulthood. We, we are mammals, and mammals are very territorial. We have boundaries. And if you observe any healthy animal, I'm not talking domesticated, just one that's just behaving in the wilderness healthy, it has a really strong sense of self and has a strong sense of its own space. And what's remarkable about that, if, if you observe it well enough, is that it allows for this very healthy interaction with all kinds of different species. They coexist in a very peaceful way because each one of them uh, advocates for their need for space. I call it the law of spaciousness. So we bring this into the workspace, for example, as you just mentioned. And a lot of the men that I'm speaking with, because there's a lot of male interviewers, I'm married to a beautiful man and I have a great relationship with my dad and I, I have male friends and colleagues. And they're um, equally leaning in. They want to have dynamic, interactive, powerful relationships and communication with each other and with women. So I think this is a people issue more than a man-woman issue. I think that there's a lot of people who really would enjoy 
knowing where your, your boundary is and respecting that. And from there, you can have much more healthy connection. And then there's going to be the few who, you know, take offense to everything and they get to grow up. This experience that we're having right now is a collective call for maturity. And so in, in my new book that's coming out soon, I talk about five levels of erotic evolution And so we're evolving as a culture around our sexuality, around our emotions, around how we relate. And this is one of those obvious moments where we're being asked to mature. And the only way that's going to work kind of more smoothly is that each of us has a lot of self-compassion because we haven't had good boundaries. We haven't really taken a stand for those boundaries. And we're going to mess up. Sometimes maybe we're going to come across as too harsh. (laughs) And the good thing about this, say you and I are friends, Catherine, and there's a boundary that's overstepped and you say, hey, Saida, that's not okay. I say, oh my gosh, I am so sorry, Catherine. I didn't realize that. You're like, ooh, that came across a little harsh. Saida, can we have a redo? I'm like, absolutely. And now I learn how to value your space. You learn how to value mine. And we get to be creative as mature adults. So that's what I'm seeing is possible, but it will take the choice of every single person. So we, as you're saying, we are evolving. All of us are evolving. This is just part of the evolutionary process. Because now I'm curious, you said with your new book, Five Levels of Erotic uh, (laughs) Evolution. Can you tell us about those? I can. I'll I'll do it quickly because they're sort of in-depth. So the very first one would be obvious. It's erotic innocence. So we're born erotically innocent. And so uh, we have this innocent connection with our body, our sensuality, and our pleasure. When hormones kick in, it's called erotic activation, which also makes sense. It's like, oh, yeah, you can feel that. No one can ignore um, teenage hormones. (laughs) They're very intense, and they wake you up. Like, sexuality is a power and we get to have this relationship with it, and it's confusing. So that's, that's the activation. Then there's erotic exploration. It's the stage where we're meant to, in a very healthy way, which is not always possible, explore everything to do and learn about our sexuality, our sensuality, and relating. So this is where often um, people will turn to pornography or, you know, very typical books on sex and how to have better sex and sexual education and, you know, it kind of exploring and going to sex parties. Like that's actually the time it needs to happen. But culturally that's not always acceptable. So it won't happen. And there's an issue when we repress that phase because it'll pop up later kind of inappropriately in life. (laughs) The fourth level um, is usually starts happening when a person says, there's got to be more to this than what I'm experiencing. That's the sign of the fourth level. And that's usually when we then seek um, a teacher or a method that's going to make us feel more relaxed, more connected, more subtle in some ways. And so that's another learning process of sexuality. And the fifth level is called erotic wisdom. And this one is really about, it's kind of full circle. We come back to erotic innocence, but with the wisdom of an adult. And this is the only phase where we're self-referenced. It's the only phase where we can we become masters of sexual tension, for example. So I talk a lot about that in the book, how we can master this. 
part of the problem that's happened in our society is we're instant gratification people. And we, we can't stand tension. It's like it's almost an irritant. But we must become masters of sexual tension because resolving that tension immediately is hardly ever appropriate. And so there's something about that. That's a maturation process of learning to master that tension. And it's, it's a fabulous uh, thing to learn, and it um, can serve us very, very well in our relationships and create a lot more satisfying connections. How long does it take us to get to that point, to go through each stage and to get, yeah, I mean, is a lifelong process yes. or <laughs> it's a good, how do it's we a good sort, question. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, it's a fabulous question. And what I did is I avoided putting, because it's, it's my theory through uh, over two decades of working very closely with sexuality and with women around the world. And for a while, I was actually teaching men as well. Now my partner teaches men, so I consult him a lot on, on the issues with men. But I, because um, I actually believe that this evolution could happen quite quickly for some and really slowly for others. And I think that wherever we're at, it's just appropriate. But in the knowing of where we're at, that it's not the only stage of where we'll be, that there is room for us to be even more responsible, that there's room for us to really go for what matters in our heart, what's deeply true in our heart, that that matters, especially in the realm of relationship. These are all concepts that may not be obvious initially for someone, especially if they're in the phase of just like, oh, I can have sex. Who do I like? How do I want to have it? When do I want to have it? <laughs> you know, those are important queries in the evolution and we must not make that a lesser stage if I could say that and yes. just like celebrate that that's the stage that that person is at well I mean that's that's fascinating work I mean that you're doing all the book I want we have a couple minutes left and so I you know I want to look when is the book coming out when can we buy the book and where can we I assume we can buy it on Amazon bookstores everywhere and also if we can go to you must have a website we can go to to find out what's happening with the book and the other work that you're doing yeah fantastic so the book itself will be simply called desire it will be available in June uh, the exact date hasn't been given to me yet, but I think the first week of June. And um, my website is dareyourdesire.com, dareyourdesire.com. And the, a great resource that I want to say for the ladies, and Catherine, you yourself, if you want to come check it out, it's, it's really an amazing, it's a community of women from all over the world who are exploring being more daring in all facets of their life. And what does it mean to be sexually sovereign and what does it mean to live life on our own terms? So we're exploring that. It's, it's confidence building. It's esteem building. But it's also building the capacity to really go for what we love. And that's the Daring Project, daringproject.com. And right now it's for women only. It's a very dynamic and uh, audacious group. I love it. I love it. I, I, and uh, you'll see me there. <laughs> Thanks so much awesome. for being on the show this morning. It was really great talking to you, Dr. Saida Desale. And uh, uh, you can go to her website. And uh, we'll look forward to the book in June. Um, and um, thanks so much, thedaringproject.com. I'll see you there. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Have a fabulous day. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 
We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.